So have you ever had the experience where your body didn't do what your brain told it to do? And, and the older you get, the more you will understand this. I mean, everyone understands it. But, you know, Teresa and I tend to see ourselves as, as pretty fit for our age. And, um, but yesterday, after standing out there for seven, eight hours cooking, I went home and just, just achy, and I woke up this morning just kind of, you know, and it's like the body is not doing what the brain told it to do. And today, since we know that imagery, the Bible uses a metaphor of Christ is the head and we are the body. And we're going to look at that today from Colossians chapter 1. And, um, and as you can see coming here, we'll ask the question, how much does Christ's body do what he says to do? You know, because um, we all can say, never mind, we'll get there. So last week, we, we we're, s- we're slowing down in Colossians chapter 1 to try and set a foundation that Christ is supreme and sufficient. Supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Christ is supreme in his person. He is the incarnate God. And then he is, what he's done on the cross is sufficient for our salvation. We don't have to add to it. So it's a beautiful truth that Colossians has. And I want to slow down in this first chapter that describes the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of his work on the cross. And we're just doing a few verses each week until we get that established. Then we'll go a little faster. But let me tell you what we did last week. If you weren't here last week, we did 15 to 17. Chapter 1, 15 to 17, we saw that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We are made in his image, but he is the image, if you remember that. And that... Jesus is fully God because we saw that he's the image of the invisible God and that no man has seen or can see God. No creature can see God, is even capable of it, nor have they seen him. Only the Son, who is fully God, has come to reveal him. And so that's why some people would say, and the person who's coming to Kloss evidently is diminishing Christ's equality with his Father. And Paul is saying, the New Testament says, Jesus is fully God, otherwise he could not reveal the Father. A creature cannot reveal the fullness of the Father. So we saw that last week. We saw that Jesus was firstborn over all creation. That is, he is supreme over it, and he has preeminence over his creation. He's the creator of all things. That phrase, all things, occurs several times. He created all things, not just human beings, but all things, visible and invisible, in heaven and on earth. And he sustains all things. We saw that beautiful truth from Hebrews chapter 1 that he holds all things together by the power of his word. Just an incredible concept of who our Savior is and what he does. That was verses 15 to 17. Today we're going to look at verses 18 um, to 20 actually. And I'll introduce 21 to 23 for next week and we'll talk about it for communion. But first we're going to see that Jesus is the head of the body. And what is the body? The church. That's what he says specifically. Let me read to you Colossians 1.18. And he, that is Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Let's talk about that for a minute. Jesus is the head. This is an incredible imagery. It's a very vivid imagery that has great application. Jesus, the incarnate God, is the head of his church. But Paul uses this imagery of the body, the body of Christ. 
Paul is the only one that uses this imagery. No other writer uses this. So this is a, 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 an imagery or a metaphor, you might say, that Paul, whether he came up with it or, or whatever, but he's the only one that talks about it. That we talk about Christ is the head, and everyone who believes in Jesus is his body. So let's go back to the fact that my body wasn't cooperating this morning when I woke up. With I, my head said, do certain things. My body said, I really don't want to do that today. And so that's how we have to think about this. He is the head. He is supreme over his body. He is supreme over creation. He's the creator of all things, and he's the sustainer of it all. That's Paul wanted us to understand that. Last week we saw that. Next, Paul wants us to understand he is supreme over his church, over the body. There is no one that takes the place of Jesus Christ. Even the Holy Spirit, and carefully listen to me now, we believe in the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We believe they are e eternally equal in their essence. They are all God. So understand that. There's no diminishing of their deity between them. Fully God. But they have different roles in our salvation. Ephesians chapter 1 says the Father planned our salvation. It says the Son accomplished our salvation on the cross. The Spirit applied that salvation to our hearts and souls and our mind. They have different roles. But one of the roles of the Holy Spirit that Jesus tells us in John 16 is that the Spirit will reveal Jesus to you. So the Spirit's role is to point to Jesus. Jesus is the central focus of Christianity. And, and so... Paul wants us to understand his supremacy as the creator of all things, his supremacy in the church. As the head, he's the command center for the body. You think about that. Now, you know, I, I want to relate it to like a motherboard for a computer, but maybe that's not a good analogy. But what Paul understood about the head, Paul understood if you cut the head off a body, what happens to the body? So there's, there's obvious things in Paul's pre-modern science, he understood the head controlled the body. Today we have greater understanding of that, a, a huge understanding of the nervous system and, and how nerves run through your whole body and they go into the spinal cord and up to the brain and the brain controls them. We know that there's a lot of uh, disabilities and, and diseases because the communication from the brain to the body through the nervous system breaks down. And so I want you to think of that. Christ is the head of his body and we are all connected to each other and to him. So I want you to realize today and think through this, that we have this thing in the Western world that we've perfected. It's called individualism. That it's all about me or you, depends on who's saying it. And while it's true, God created individuals. The emphasis in the New Testament in this imagery here of the body of Christ is we're collective. We're seen as a group. And though there are individual members, why do each of you exist as a member of the body? Say that louder. Glorify God. That's the answer to everything. <laughs> but but let's, let's put some teeth to it. When it comes to the body of Christ, you, an individual member, exist for what purpose? To serve the other members. So I've seen some new babies. We have a new baby over here, and there's other new babies. And as new babies, they lie in a bassinet, and they, they really don't do anything. <laughs> moms, moms, do you, let, do, you, do you treasure your infants? 
we dad, moms, come on, help me out here. Do you treasure your infants? I'm not talking about, okay. So we dads love our infants, but we really like it when they do something. So, so as these infants grow, they start moving their limbs. And all of a sudden they find out the purpose of their hand is to put whatever they're grabbing into their mouths. You know, and so, so the hand doesn't exist for itself. We see that in a baby. The hand exists to feed it or do whatever they want to put in their mouth. And so you just by observation, you see that each member of your physical body is designed to serve some other aspect of the body. It doesn't exist for itself. And Christ has his body, everyone who believes in him. And by the way, I woke up this morning not happy with my notes. And I usually don't get there. But this morning I woke up and I looked at them and crossed stuff out and redid stuff. I talked to Janet. Janet said, I'm going to go free form this morning, so I hope you can keep up with me. But I want us to understand who Christ is as supreme over his church. No pastor is supreme. I don't care what denomination you come from. No human being is supreme in his church. Some of us act like it. Christ is supreme. And all of us are his body, the equal members of his body that have a purpose to serve the other body members. So as a whole, we are his instrument in the world. You must get this. Your relationship with me and my relationship with you and everyone next to you and around you is designed that we serve one another to help each other grow so that we become an instrument in the hands of our head, Jesus Christ, to be a force in this world. And too often when we look at our spiritual gifts, and let's, let's back up here, now I'm going too free form. Paul talks about this imagery of the body of Christ here in Coloss, Colossians, the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, the book of Romans, chapter 12, in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, 13, and 14, but the heavy emphasis on the body metaphor is in chapter 12. And here's what those tell us. I was going to read a bunch of them to you. I said, I'm not going to read them to you. I'm just going to explain them to you. And that is that Christ as the head has redeemed his body. We'll look at that in a minute. Reconciled lost sinners to his father and created a group called the people of Jesus. And then he's gifted them. He's endowed them with abilities to serve one another and serve the world. And he directs it as the head. So what, what 1 Corinthians and Ephesians um, and Romans call spiritual gifts. So there's certain abilities, serving one another, hospitality, teaching, prophecy. It, it goes on and on. There's a list of about 20 different spiritual gifts that are designed to be the instrument of Christ in serving one another to build up the body of Christ, to, to bring us to maturity so we are an instrument in his hands to the world. I already said that, but I want to say it again. What is your place in this body? Do you know it? Colossians simply says he is the head of the body. That's as much as he says here. He talks about the body a little bit later on, the body holding on to the head, Christ. But Colossians doesn't flesh out what it means to be the body of Christ. So I wanted to just do this quickly for us, since it's not the main point of Colossians, but I don't want to miss the opportunity here for you to grasp 
what your identity is and your, and your job description. Don't raise your hand, don't answer me, but I want to ask you, do you understand where you fit in the body of Christ? Do you know what your gifts are? And by the way, we tend to emphasize spiritual gifts over talents. I don't do that. Because is, is Jesus Christ your creator? Is Jesus Christ your sustainer? So everything about you is a gift from him. James chapter 1 says that every good gift comes from above. Every good thing about you comes from God. You're a steward of it. So I would say whatever your talents are and what your spiritual gifts are, they work together. And so, so this lady that stands right here, she has a talent of playing the guitar and singing. But I tell you, her spiritual gifts, she's a great encouragement in my life. So, so whether she understands it or not, she is a great encourager to people. She's always upbeat, has kind words to say to me. And so her spiritual gift, at least one of them, is encouragement. But her gift, excuse me, her gift is encouragement. But her talent is from God, too. And she uses the two together to lead us and encourage us. We all have this, every one of us. We tend to know what our talents are. But how do you know what your spiritual gift is? How do you learn that? You can go online and get some inventories to take a test. Like anything else in the world, you can take a test and it'll tell you who you are. I don't have much use for those spiritual gift tests personally. Um, to me, they're good conversation starters. But that's about as much as they are for me. You know the best way to figure out how God has gifted you? I'll give you two imageries here. First one is God does not steer a parked car. God doesn't steer a parked car. So to get a car to move, what do you have to do? Start it, put it in drive, and hit the gas. You get involved. Get involved in people's lives. And, and then, then it's gonna, things are going to happen, especially if you're in a small group. I've been in small groups before that have been together for a long time. And we went around the room, we'd go around the room and say, you weren't allowed to say what, your spiritual, what you thought your spiritual gift was. You were supposed to listen to everyone else to see how you ministered to them. They know better than you how God has equipped you. As a young Christian, I had a deep conviction that the poor, we, we needed to give more money to the poor. So I was working to, to, to give away as much as I could to the poor. It was really driven by guilt. Um, my wife was wondering, would I even come home with a paycheck? Could I give it away? And that, that was just, just, I had this passion. And in this Bible study, I've been a Christian about two years. In this Bible study I was in, they, um, we were studying a, 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 a curriculum on spiritual gifts, and we went around the room and said, this is how you minister to me. It took us a whole, a whole evening to do this. Everyone said how everyone else ministered. And people kept saying to me, I was only been a Christian two years, Tony, you explain the word really well. You must be a teacher. I mean, what are you talking about? I've never taught anybody. I have the gift of giving. And, but everyone, everyone said, I like the way you explain the verses when we talk about them. 
So I quit giving and I started teaching. <laughs> That's what you don't do. The spiritual gifts, we are involved in all of the things the gifts do. But there's some, it narrows down to some sharpened, heightened abilities God gives you and the spirit empowers that make you the hand, the foot, the eye, the ear, whatever it is in the body. And you must understand that and step into it. So does that make sense? I want you to think about this. I don't want you to answer this because I really want to be an encouragement today, not a, you should do better. I, I don't want to be that way because I really point at myself. But this morning when I got up and my body didn't want to get up, I was just so, I couldn't believe how sore I was. I, I lifted some things, but not a lot. I lift weights regularly. It's, it's fun to do. Why was I so sore yesterday? Well, I just stood around for eight hours on my, you know, feet doing things, cooking. And, um, and if you realize things start breaking down in your body, they don't work as well as they used to. Some, some parts stop altogether as time goes by. So how many parts of Christ's body are not doing what he designed them to do? I'm talking about us now. That it becomes part of our identity it prims part of the, the purpose I wake up each day. I realize you got to go to work, you got to do whatever it is you do, but in the midst of all that, you have a certain capacity to serve others that he's given you. And it should be forefront on our minds all the time to serve each other for the goal of seeing you come to faith in Jesus and grow in faith in Jesus to maturity. Ephesians chapter 4 gives a beautiful imagery that the body works together, each part and ligament doing its part till we grow up to mature manhood, it says. Uh, literally, it's to become a mature man in the Greek, referring to a mature human being. And it's not saying Jay is mature, you know, this, uh, you know and, and, and over here Robin is mature individually. It's saying we function together. This is Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16. We function together as one and we become mature like Jesus. We grow up into the head, and we are like him. So that's the beauty of the body of Christ. So let me read what I wrote here. I'm just going to jump back to my notes. Janet, I'm sorry if I lost you. Both the physical body and the church are living organisms made up of individual members who are united to each other. Individual members who are united to each other. The body is a collective whole. One body made up of many individual members. Each member, person, has their place to fill and their work to do. And all of them are dependent on each other to accomplish the purpose of the body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Think about that. First of all, your hand doesn't talk. But the foot can't say to the eye, I don't need you. How much would your foot struggle if your eyes didn't work? People who have sight problems that are blind, they don't understand well. So each of us are dependent on others to accomplish the purpose of the body. Each member is essential to the overall function and purpose of the body. So when we don't step into our purpose, 
Christ's tool, his instrument called the body of Christ, is not sharp. Do, 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 you, hear, do you hear that? When we choose not to be participants in his church, if he's the head and we are the expression of him in the world, but I won't do my part, in some way I've just limited the Savior. In some way. And all of the members are to be led by and they are submit to the head. Remember Christopher Reeves? How, how many of my age? The first su superhero movie was Superman. That's the first one I remember. No high-tech stuff. But that invigorated me. The concept of Superman. They did a good job. I think they made three movies. So you have Christopher Reeve who plays Superman, who can do anything. But then he's riding his horse in real life one day. Gets thrown off. Breaks his neck and becomes utterly paralyzed to where he had to have a machine breathe for him. So he went from portraying Superman to his body completely disconnected from his brain and could do absolutely nothing. So let's keep in mind, I don't want to say the Savior is limited. This is our all-powerful God. But he's chose us to be his instrument in the world. Let's, let's go to him, then go to one another and say, I want to be used by you, God. However I can be used, wherever, doesn't matter, the least to the greatest. Let me be your instrument on seeing your church grow to maturity so we can take this thing called the gospel to the world. Make sense? Okay, let's see if I can get back in my notes. That was just the first phrase of verse 18. I want to read 18 through 20 its entirety now and talk about Jesus as the firstborn from the dead. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul shifts from his identity to his work. So let's, let's walk through that second, the, the next statement about his identity. He, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. This is talking about his resurrection. It said there he is the firstborn. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. I want to walk through this verse by verse. So there it said that, that he is the beginning, in verse 18, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So, so that he might be preeminent in everything. Let's talk about that for a moment. We've already seen that he's preeminent over creation. So that, that, that's the big picture. Now he gets very specific, his church. He's the firstborn from the, he's the first one resurrected. And that resurrection gives him preeminence in our world, the church world. The outside world doesn't believe that. As a general rule, those outside the church don't believe Jesus rose from the dead never to die again. That is an internal position he has as the firstborn from the dead. It makes him preeminent over his church. So how does the resurrection make him preeminent? Let's read Romans chapter 8 real quick. This is the famous passage that we tend to miss the point. Romans 8, 26 says that when you're in pain, suffering, 
What's the Spirit do for you? You can't even pray there's so much pain in your life. What's the Spirit do? It intercedes for you. Not it. He intercedes for you with prayers. All you can do is groan because of the pain in your life. You ever been there? The Spirit then comes into you to intercede and bring those prayers to God, to pray according to God's will. It's really incredible truth. But then in verse 28, it's on the screen. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. The all things in the context is the suffering in your life the pain in your life, the hard times. And again, I've said this before, if we put a microphone out there and pass it around, we'd come up with a list that's unbelievable, the pain that is in this room. All things are good, right? I'm so glad you didn't say yes. What does it say? All things work together for good. The pain in your life is not good. Some of it's normal life stuff. Some of it is, is tragedy, unbelievable tragedy. I, I know people in this room have lost children. And a parent shouldn't have to bury their child. That's, you're calling that good? No, that's terrible. That is an evil that takes place in our life. It is not good. Well, what does Paul mean then that all things work together for good? For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Now verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he uses five words now. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he, his son, might be firstborn among many brothers. It goes on to say then, those whom he predestined, he called. He knocked on your door and he opened your eyes to Jesus. And when that happened, he justified you. And then it says he glorified you, all past tense. Because to God's perspective, his salvific work is done from his perspective. He foreknew you, he predestined you, he called you, he justified you, and he glorified you. We haven't been glorified yet in reality, not in our time frame. But from God's perspective, his job, his work is done. And it's being accomplished in you. But right in the middle is the point of the passage. The pain in your life today. The pain in your life today, whatever it is, it's whether it's pain with your, your family members, your work, your b- physical body, whatever it is, the IRS, whatever it is. Some, some of it's our own fault, by the way. Um, he's predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Everything that happens in your life runs through the hand of God. I don't believe God is the cause of everything that happens in your life. But God is not off the throne in his universe. He's on his throne. And whatever the world or the devil throws at you has to go through the hand of God first. And in the end, though he's not the source of all that evil in your life, he's not the cause of that evil, his sovereign love for you will use that pain to make you like Jesus Christ. Why? The next phrase, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. I want to end this sermon today to try and wrap up the whole thing from from Adam to the resurrection. We'll see if I can do it. But Christ came to us 
sinful creations of his that were in rebellion to turn us around and restore us back to being like him. So he is preeminent over his church in all things. And he's the firstborn from the dead that he might be preeminent, it says. As he raised from the dead first, guess when you're going to be fully formed to the image of Christ? When you will look and think like Jesus, not literally look, but in your attitudes and your actions and your, your, your motives and all that. When will that happen where it's fully, complete done? When we see him, when will we see him? At his second coming. This doesn't happen when you die, by the way. It happens at the second coming of Jesus Christ. At that moment, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will be conformed to his image in its entirety. You will be like Jesus, and he will be the firstborn. He will be the preeminent one of this multitude of people who he has taken from the depths of their sins and brought them back and stand before him holy and blameless and without reproach. And we all look at him and say, it's all because of you. You're the Savior. You're the Lord. You're the preeminent one. We get no glory. There's even this beautiful imagery in Scripture. I think five different times it says that, that we, are, we can receive rewards, receive crowns. For our faithfulness, we get crowns. So it's like Jesus, good, good job, Frank. Well done, good and faithful servant. Here's your reward. And you know what the book of Revelation says we do with these crowns? We fall down at Jesus' feet and we throw them back at his feet. We say, I don't deserve that. You do. And what a beautiful day that will be. So, why should he be preeminent? What makes him so special? Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Because he is God incarnate. This is, what, this is why this whole passage, and I know that it's spending so much time slowing down, we miss the big picture. Paul wrote it in, in, in a very brief time. It was read in a very brief time from 15 to 23. But we have... The pre-incarnate Jesus, who before he became human, is with God forever, eternal, becomes human, and in his humanity, he's fully God, this passage says. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We'll expand on that in chapter 2, verse 10, 9 and 10, mentions it again. But th this God who became incarnate became like us. He humbled himself to become human, and he died on a cross to redeem us, to restore us back to him. That's why he should be preeminent. That's why he should have first place in everything in our lives. Because we were hopeless, whether we knew it or not. And he came, not only gave us hope, but he's going to fulfill that hope. That's why Colossians calls him the hope of glory. Christ in you. The beauty and irony of Christianity is expressed in this verse, in this next verse. The incarnate God who was preeminence over all things, gave up his life to reconcile you and me to the Father. Let's look at verse 20. Through Jesus' sacrificial work on the, with the, through Jesus sacrificial work, the Father reconciled all things to himself. Verse 20. And through him, that is this incarnate God, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, 
You see the all things? So verse 16 says Jesus is the creator of all things. One translation says the universe. But the phrase all things is the same. Jesus is the creator of all things. If you get down to verse later on, it says Jesus is the sustainer of all things. He's now the reconciler of all things. These all things, his universe that he created, turned, we turned our backs on him. And he's come now to redeem and reconcile us to the Father. All things is more than humans, though. Understand this. All things is more than human. I want us to see the collective nature of this reconciliation. It's comprehensive to all creation. We tend to see, we have a simplistic view, folks, that I want us to, to get rid of. We kind of tend to see this world is evil, this body drives me nuts, it's dying on me. I just want to get away from it and go with be with Jesus in heaven. Absent from the body. I'll say it again, absent from the body. I don't have my hearing aids in, so I've got to talk louder. Um, we tend to think that's finality. That, that's, that's, a, that's a stopping point. It's not final. Finality is the resurrection from the dead, the kingdom of God established, a new, a new heavens and a new earth created, where we live forever in our glorified bodies with our Savior. That's finality, not my death, but my resurrection. And so when he does that, he'll restore all things. Everything will be restored. Romans says this. Romans says that, that right now the creation is groaning because it's been subjected to futility. Adam and Eve's sin had great effect upon the world, the created world. When Christ returns, he'll reverse all of that. And he did it by the blood of his cross. It's an incredible truth. So here's what I want to do. I want to summarize this for you and see if I can get it right. Stay with me. It's not on the screen. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the creator and sustainer of all things, visible, invisible, heaven and earth, dominions, powers, authorities, everything. Christ is the head of the body, that is the church, the people who believe in him. Christ is God incarnate, and Christ is the firstborn from the dead, that he's the first resurrected human being never to die again. This Christ has come to reconcile the entirety of his creation to his Father. Of which I would say, you and I are the pinnacle of his creation. Listen to this. The supremacy of Christ must be properly understood if we're going to fully grasp the beauty and glory of his reconciling work on the cross. Jesus has made peace between his father and the fallen created world. Often when we see the word peace in the Bible, we tend to think, oh, I feel at peace. It's an emotion. It's actually seldom referring to an emotion. It's actually referring to the absence of conflict. When he's the prince of peace, it's not about how you feel. It's your status before God. You're no longer an enemy. There's no longer enmity. There is peace. Because Christ took the brunt of that enmity. Everything that is wrong in this world is due to mankind's rebellion. Adam and Eve, as the pinnacle of God's creation, were given a 
a commission. Multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion over it. Their rebellion gave that dominion to Satan. Please stay with me. Adam and Eve's rebellion gave the dominion they were given as God's image bearers to oversee the earth. Their rebellion gave that to Satan. He now has dominion. The domain of darkness. Chapter 1. Where you and I used to live. But it says we've been transferred to the domain of darkness. Where? All creation was deeply affected by this rebellion, and it's called death. We die physically and spiritually. We no longer had a relationship with God. In the midst of this hopeless situation, God the Father sent his son to become fully human in order to live the life that Adam failed to live. Then, as the second Adam, as the perfect human being, he went to the cross and shed his blood. To shed his blood is a, a vivid imagery of dying. He died on the cross in our place. That death has made peace between God and us. Our enmity has been taken away. The irony of Christianity, death brought life. The death of Jesus gave you eternal life. His resurrection from the dead is proof that Christ has defeated Satan, death, and sin. And he's restoring all things back to his father. As he takes people out of the domain of darkness, Satan's kingdom, transfers them to the kingdom of his son, Jesus, the kingdom of light, there is a battle going on. And the kingdom of darkness is being diminished, and the kingdom of light of the beloved son is growing. That's why he formed his body, the church, his people, to be instruments in his hands to bring this reconciling message to the rest of mankind. He's the head of the body, of which each of you are a member. You are the beneficiary of his reconciling work. And more than simply giving a gift called eternal life, now I could sit down and wait. He said, now I've got an amazing job for you to do. And that is to live out the life I've given to you as a member of my body, to help your fellow brothers and sisters grow to maturity so that you guys become an incredible instrument in my hands to redeem this world. So here's what I'm going to do. I want us to, we have verses 21 to 23. I want to read them to you because it expands on this as we prepare our hearts for communion. And here's how we're going to do communion. Of late, we've been having you, Elaine and I just love this. We've been having you come forward, get the elements, go back to your seats, and take them when you're ready. Pray with your family members or by yourself, however you've been doing it. And I love that, but today we're going to do it differently. In light of the fact that we, we are the people of God, we are the corporate body of Christ, it's not about me, it's about us. Again, I want you to come get the elements, go back to your seats, and wait, and we will take them together as the body of Christ, as a reminder.
reminder of our corporate nature that I don't get to do things without you and you don't get to do things without me. We need each other. So I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come up. Then I want to read this passage to you. As you think about this, um, I'm going to come get you the elements. Father, thank you for these truths today. And, and <laughs> we talked a lot today, God, about this. And waking up this morning not being happy with what I was going to say, how I was going to say it. And so, Father, I, again, I just pray, Father, you, you, you take this passage from Colossians and burn it into our hearts and minds how incredible your son is that he should be preeminent in his church and that we should should recognize that we don't give him that position he has it we recognize it and we fall before him and we worship him and we serve him and then we are his instruments we do what he calls us to do open our eyes now to the depths of our sin prior to knowing Jesus and to the heights of the glory of the reconciling work as he shed his blood on the cross for us. Yeah. Thank you, Father. We hope this communion service honors you. In Christ's name, amen. After I read this passage, I want you to come get the elements, then go back to your chairs. And you, this is Colossians 1.21, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed into all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Thank you, Father.